I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2021 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series supported by Environmental Tillage Systems. In today's program, we get some transitional takeaways from a consistently high-yielding strip-tiller on how his recent entry into the practice has broken through new yield barriers and improved nutrient efficiency. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to Environmental Tillage Systems for their support of this podcast series. At Environmental Tillage Systems, our mission is to provide progressive farmers with an innovative production system that profitably rebuilds the land. Contact ETS to discuss how the Soil Warrior can improve ROI on your farm at www.soilwarrior.com. Well, shattering yield barriers is part of David Hewla's DNA. The Charles City, Virginia farmer is known for his record-breaking corn yields, but the results are not based on repetition. Rather, it's David's willingness to embrace change and accept the challenges of adopting a new farming philosophy. Starting in 2018, the longtime no-tiller began transitioning corn acres on his operation to strip-till, seeking more consistency in early emergence, targeted fertilizer placement, and yield growth. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, part one of two, supported by Environmental Tillage Systems, David analyzes the operational challenges, economic gains, and growth potential of transitioning to strip-tilled corn. I'm the third generation here at Rimwood Farms, and we're located in Charles City, Virginia. So if you had a big map, we would be about 60 miles from the Atlantic Ocean along the banks of the James River. And a little history lesson as well is back in 1607, we know what happened then. Captain John Smith brought several ships up the Chesapeake Bay and landed on Jamestown Island on the James River. And they lived there for a little while there on the island. And then in 1609, they started farming some ground that is called Mainland Farms. And it is the oldest continuously farmed ground from the Western civilization. It's been cultivated every year since 1609 in different capacities. And I'll tell you, we've come a long way from digging a hole, putting a catfish down in it, and then putting four kernels of corn on top of it. And that was how they were producing maize. We've been fortunate enough to farm that for many years, and their tillage practices have changed a great deal over the last several decades. Here at Rimwood Farms, like I said, I'm the third generation. I've had opportunities to farm with my late granddad and my dad, and I have two brothers that I farm with, and I have a son. And then the next generation, I got a -a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson now. And boy, there's nothing any better. Anybody that's a grandparent can appreciate that. So when we think about what's going on at Renwood, a lot of folks are asking, Dave, what's crop look like? So it's not often when I'm given a presentation, I'm sitting here in the office. So this is a little new to me, just like it is for y'all. And looking at air crops, part of the country's had a really good year. We have had a very stressful year. I was telling Jack a little while before we got started, probably 5 to 10% of our corn is going to be zero bushels. And then there's about 40% of it's going to be from that 50 to 80 bushel range. And then we have irrigated corn and we'll have some yields there in the middle. So we will have a very good conversation and we'll be depending a lot on our crop insurance. But back in the, oh, right after the commodity classic, 
uh, Caitlin with the Environmental Tillage Systems Group that produced a soil warrior said, hey, Dave, do you think you'd be interested in talking at the strip-till conference? And I thought about that for a second, and I'm like, I don't know. I might lose my invitation to speak at the no-till conference because we've been a continuous no-tiller since 1986. We started with a seven-foot Lilliston drill. Years before that, we were no-tilling some corn and soybeans in the early 80s. And then, thinking back, my dad and I went to land-grant university there at Virginia Tech and spoke with a couple of the key small grain producers, both Dr. Dan Brand and Dr. Mark Alley. And my dad asked them if they thought no-till wheat would work in their system because their traditional rotation is corn, the small grain, and then double crop soybeans behind that. And their corn was no-tilled, their soybeans were no-tilled behind the wheat residue, and we wanted to incorporate our no-till small grain. Because prior to the 80s, we were like the Midwest. We were plowing our corn fields, we were plowing our small grain, we were plowing after small grain to plant our soybeans. And when you think about uh, what time at your life cycle, did you really want to farm? And I remember riding on a 4030 tractor, open cab, just had a hood on it. And I was riding on the wheel well while my dad was planting corn. And I bet I wasn't six or seven years old, maybe eight. And he was using a 7,000 John Deere planter. Planting corn, had the row marker falling out. Now, this is unusual. It was a seven-row, 27-and-a-half-inch planter, which is way different from what we had back then because most everybody was 36-inch to 38-inch. And my late granddad bought a combine, and he said, you know what? I think we could narrow these snouts up and have seven rows as opposed to six rows. Then they figured out how to do their planter, and they started with a 27-and-a-half-inch row planter after they went from the 36 or 38 prior to it. But I'm riding on that wheel well, watching my dad plant corn, and I was just mesmerized. And at that point in time, I realized I wanted to farm. And after going to school, attended North Carolina State University, did four years, got an undergraduate in agronomy, and then came back to the farm. We know how tragic and how dangerous a farming operation is, y'all. But my dad had a brother, Marvin, and he fell off a grain bin back in February of 1985 and passed away. So I came back to the farm, worked for a while, and then I met Miss Sandy. We got married. But before, I wanted to make farming a lifetime commitment. Just like my dad and my uncle, they both left the farm for a little while. So I left and had an opportunity to work with the Chesapeake Bay program, with the Division of Soil and Water Conservation as a nutrient management specialist. And during that time, I realized that the good Lord gave me two ears and one mouth. And I'm working with all these great farmers, and a lot of them just, I remember them very well. Ronnie Russell in Middlesex, J.N. Mills in Hanover, and just a lot of good growers, the Tollivers in Essex County, and then, of course, my dad and neighbors. So I'm listening to all these growers and learning from their successes, helping them develop nutrient management plans, tillage management plans. And then over time, I decided I wanted to come back to a farm. And then I don't know how it works well in the Midwest, but we figure it takes about a thousand acres for a family member to have a decent lifestyle with some support staff. So I found some additional acres in another county and brought it back to the farm and been farming ever since. And like I said, my son's working with me and two brothers. 
Uh, we're cultivating around 4,000 acres, and most of our small grain and soybeans are for seed. My dad's still living, so I get to run a lot of ideas by him. But then also we've incorporated some irrigation. Probably 27% of our acres is irrigated. And this year we wish we had more, but unfortunately we don't. So we're just working with what we have. But back to the story about the no-till, incorporating continuous no-till. My dad asked those folks at the land grant there at Virginia Tech, what do you think about no-till and weed into corn stalks? Well, their big concern was, of course, the vomitoxin or scab as the corn stalks decay and then you get that disease. And then my dad asked them, said, well, all right, if that's a concern, what is the frequency of it? And they said at that time, they figured about one out of eight years would be a drastic event. And then you'll have some smaller events in the meantime. And then there'll be a lot of years you won't have an issue at all. Well, my dad, I remember to this day, he kind of crossed his arms and leaned back in his chair and kind of chuckled. And he's like, well, does Virginia Tech still recommending growers to raise corn? And they're like, of course. Well, in the early 80s, I don't know how it was across the rest of the country, but we experienced two droughts in five years. And he's like, well, if we're going to have two droughts in five years, and you're saying one out of eight years, you know, that's a risk worth taking. And we implemented a continuous no-till system from then on. And most all our acres have been in that until the last three years. And being part of the Chesapeake Bay program, we have to follow nutrient management plans. If you were to look at a topo map, and any blue line on that topo map would indicate that there is a area in which you cannot farm, and then there's an area in which you can farm, but you have to follow certain practices. And they first delineate 100 foot from that blue line on topo map. And if you implement a conservation plan, you implement a pest management plan and a nutrient management plan, you can shrink that border up to 25 foot of that blue line. In doing so, that's kind of forced growers to understand the value of nutrient management. Today in our economy, we can't afford to over-fertilize. We don't want local folks to think that, hey, we're just pouring fertilizer on. I know there was a potential politician saying, well, planting corn's easy, raising the corn crop's easy. You just dig a hole, plant some seed, put a little fertilizer and water, and it's done. Well, we know that raising crops today is a lot more intense. And with that, Chesapeake Bay, and don't just think of the Chesapeake Bay as being a water quality issue. Think about how the whole United States is starting to look because the Chesapeake Bay is ground zero for water quality. And we've had great successes on cleaning up the rivers, the streams, the tributaries of the bay. I remember as a kid, they were much more polluted. And today, unless we get a hurricane or some major events, the river's a lot cleaner from sediment because of a reduced tillage and our filter strips and grass waterways, so they've improved. We've significantly reduced our nitrogen and phosphorus. A lot of it comes from the urban side, so they're doing good management there. Of course, sewage treatment plants are trying to do a better job, and agriculture clearly is because we can't afford to over-fertilize. When we look back at our prices today compared to what they were several years ago, it wasn't so bad. But when you look several decades back, their prices have not really done a whole lot of changing. But yet our cost to produce that crop is significantly increased. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Environmental Tillage Systems, for making this podcast possible. At Environmental Tillage Systems, our mission is to provide progressive farmers with an innovative production system that profitably rebuilds the land. Contact ETS to discuss how the Soil Warrior can improve ROI on your farm at www.soilwarrior.com. 
Let's get back to the program now and hear more from David Hula on some of his nutrient management objectives with Strip-Till. How many of y'all remember the late Francis Chalk? And if you remember him and if you ever had a chance to hear him talk, for the younger guys or those that are new into farming, Francis Childs was the first man that I know of to grow over 400 bushel corn. And he went around the country and gave a lot of presentations. And I remember sitting in the front row, and I'm a Southern Baptist, so I prefer to be in the back. But I was sitting in the front row, and I had a notepad and a piece of paper, and I was ready to write down what fertilizer use, what rates, what corn hybrid to plant what fungicide or what insecticide, what populations, what tillage. There was something tangible that I wanted to write down. And he had a, if I recall, it was either a 13 or 14 point plan to success. And the number one thing on that plan was you had to have a positive attitude. And boy, I just sunk in my chair. Because I'm like, where in the world do you need a positive attitude to grow corn? I can tell you what you need to have to grow corn. The good Lord's got to bless you is number one. Number two, you got to have pioneer seed. And number three, you got to have green paint. You got to use John Deere equipment. Well, we realize that it's much more than that. And I know what Francis was saying. Francis was saying you had to be willing to change. Because we all know what the definition of sanity is. And if you continue to do the same things that you're doing, you really can't expect a different result. You may change a hybrid. You may change a little tillage equipment, tillage applications, or change a little fertilizer. But you're not going to do any drastic changes or improvements. So it's a system. And that's what Renwood has developed. We develop a system. So we went from conventional tillage in the early 80s or before. And then in the mid 80s, we switched to continuous no-till. Now, we've had great successes, y'all. I mean, the good Lord has really blessed us. We've learned a great deal. We've partnered. It's nothing that I know that I don't have a silver bullet. We've been able to pick and choose. We have a whole team of folks, Paul Bonestein, our agronomist, Jimmy Ward, part of our nutrient ag solutions group. I mean, that's our fertilizer supplier. And then we get into BASF chemistry for fungicides and then insecticides. And then we start dealing with other fertilizers, specialty products and equipment irrigation monitor, John Deere, providing us with some spray equipment. Now, when I say provide, I know most people say, well, hey, Dave, you've had some good success. So, and if I had all that free equipment or somebody was paying my bills or getting free seed or free fertilizer, y'all, I write the same checks y'all do. So we may get a little bit of seed to try, but other than that, I'm buying green paint. I'm buying crop protection stuff. I'm buying fertilizer. So Those folks that think it's all free, I would surely exchange some of the bills that I have for some of the bills that they have because there's probably no difference just based on acres. But when Francis talked about positive attitude and us would be willing to change, one of the things that we started doing was I was talking to folks across the country, and some of them were talking about strip tilling. And a good friend of mine, Mr. Brent, who used to be with Pioneer, he transitioned and switched occupations and started working with this environmental tillage system. They developed a soil warrior strip till machine. And he gave me a call and said, Dave, you going to be traveling anywhere? And I said, yeah. And I told him some places, and he, we got hooked up. And Brent started talking to me about this strip till piece of machinery. I said, well, I'd probably be interested in trying it, not really knowing what we would be looking at. But when I'm looking at making changes, I look at how can I improve my bottom line? And when I talk about improving yields, you can improve yields. I can tell you some things that would be very expensive and it may give you five, 10 bushels, but it's not giving you that ROI that you want. 
And when I talk about, well, how am I going to influence yield? Or when I share with my agronomist, hey, man, we just picked up 27 bushels. My agronomist Paul's going to say, all right, how'd you pick it up? Because there's only several ways in which you can influence yield. And the way we take your grain and sell it, when you go to the granary, what are they paying you for? They pay you for pounds, first of all. And then how can you create more pounds? Well, it's based on numbers of kernels. Now we're focused on corn now, but it's based on a number of kernels on the ear. And then, so how many long? When can you influence that? How big around the ear? When you can influence that? And how heavy the ears are? When can you influence that? And then it's easy to influence on how many ears you have out there, unless you have a drought like we have, because we have a lot of corn that's got tassels, but no silks. And we just have been that dry until last Friday. We were blessed to have an inch to two inches of rain, but most of our corn was already passed, it's done. So how can you influence yields and where can you do that? So that's one way to where you can improve your bottom line. And then the other is where else? Is either saving money or being more efficient with your time. So when Brent was talking about the strip till rig, first of all, I'm thinking about, all right, now we're looking at tillage. Well, Brent, we don't do any tillage. And we're doing fine. We're getting good stands. We're getting good emergence. We're picking decent yields. So how are you going to help me on that? Well, Brent's like, well, here we can do this shallow tillage with the soil warrior. We're creating a band about three inches deep and about seven to eight inches wide. Now, our soil warrior has a trash sweep in the front. And I'm sure when y'all go to look at throughout this program, if you were there, you'd probably see a soil warrior, but you could go to their links and see in this ETS, Environmental Tillage Systems Group. But we have the trash sweeps in the front, and then we have three no-till culture blades, and then we have a mechanism to blow some fertilizer in it, and then we have a rolling basket on the back. And we can, not each row is individually, but sections are controlled. And where we have traffic patterns, we can put more pressure down where we have the pinch rows. And then in the wings, we can adjust the pressure. And I haven't tried going deeper. We really were just trying to impregnate some of that fertilizer in that band. Because when I first thought about the strip till, I'm like, all right, we're just working a little bit of soil up. He's like, well, no, you can also put in fertilizer. So now we're putting in fertilizer. And when I'm saying fertilizer, I'm talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, sulfur, zinc, and some other micronutrients. Then we're also adding some other products. You can add like some humic acids or you can add some other uh, soil amendment type technologies. Well, the first year we picked a farm. I think we did about 600 acres the very first year. And we have a 12-row machine. We're planting with a 16-row corn planter. So we needed to be sure we lined up rows. We're doing RTK. But then we also had implemented the implement steer so we could assure that. And they came down, helped us get the equipment set up. We put some fertilizer in it. We went out there and stripped. Unfortunately, we have not been able to strip till anything in the fall. All their strip tillage has been done in the late winter or early spring. And that's partially because we're so rushed on getting their crop out before a hurricane. And then second, we got to get our small grain planted right behind their corn crop. And then we're using a grain cart. So we're limited on equipment. We're limited on people. But then the weather turns south. And doing the strip till, we catch up in the wintertime. Because then that gives us time to pull their soil samples too. And as we pull their soil samples, you know, that's giving us a range. But then when Brent was talking about, hey, you can be a lot more efficient with your fertilizer. Now, that rung a bell to me because of my nutrient management days. 
we know how we're doing it previously before strip till. We knew how we were making our fertilizer applications. Typically, we don't broadcast any nitrogen in front of a corn crop unless we're doing a little bit of MAP or DAP. That's where we'll get some nitrogen with that. But then in reference to a widespread or a big application of nitrogen, there is no broadcast nitrogen. Then we come in with their planter, and then we're putting roughly 65 pounds of nitrogen, 30-some pounds of phosphate, and no potash. But then we'll also do some sulfur, some zinc, and some boron. And with the information that we've learned from other growers, you know, the neatest thing about networking with people, there's a fella down in uh, Georgia. Randy Dowdy, and he has brought a lot of information to agriculture in his short time frame because he hasn't been farming very long. But one of the things that he introduced me to was putting starter on both sides of the corn row. So we started doing that, and we were seeing some benefits to it. Corn roots grow on both sides of the plant, really grow in a circle. But if you put starter on both sides, now we'll pick up a benefit there. And then we start side dressing our corn. So when Brent was talking about fertilizer, like I said, that just kind of struck me. It's like, all right, how can we be more efficient? So we were putting this phosphate and this potash and a little bit of nitrogen and then the zinc and the sulfur and some other micros in this strip. Most of y'all well know it's significantly cheaper to use dry fertilizer than it is some of these safer fertilizers where you can spray on the crop. And some nutrients you need to fix up front. You can't chase a rabbit down the hole and you can't fix deficiencies in season. So we try to address a lot of things up front before we plant in reference to pHs and then potash and then some micronutrients and then our phosphate as well. So we put this fertilizer down. We were on the strip till rig the first part of March and we started planting corn on the first part of April. This was three years ago when we first tried it. And I remember this one particular farm and we've done a lot of trials, but we did a strip-till trial there with the fertilizer and their strip-till compared to the fertilizer without the strip-till. And the first couple passes, we averaged 27 and a half bushels more. Now y'all, did y'all hear that? 27 and a half bushels. The only thing I did different was we banned that fertilizer in that strip. Now, I didn't reduce the rates. I kept the rates the exact same. I'm trying to learn. And there's only so much time to do plots. Everybody tries to get you to do plots. They give you maybe some product to try, some seed, and then you just run out of time. So we did some plots there and 27 and a half bushels. As my agronomist would say, how did you do that? Where did that bushels come from? So one of the things that we're really good at is collecting data. I'll tissue sample every Monday morning. Now, unfortunately, today I didn't tissue sample because I was going to be doing this webinar. So we missed today and we'll catch up. We'll do it tomorrow. But we're evaluating their stands from the time their corn comes up. Because a lot of people say, Dave, when did you know you had a good corn crop? Or when did you know you were going to achieve that high yield? And most of the time I can say, well, it's when the corn came out of the ground because we want to see a great stand. Now, we've done a lot of things with equipment, precision planting being a big introduction to it. Well, first of all, John Deere planters. We started out with John Deere planters, and they had their exact emerge planter that we played with, and then they tried that to get that picket row fence stand and the seed simulation, and we were getting that. And then we kind of transitioned into some of the precision stuff to where we can get that picket row fence stand. Because most people say, hey, I want to have a picket row fence stand. I want to see all my corn four inches, six inches, or eight inches apart without having any skips. That's important, but I will tell you what's more important is have all that corn come up uniformly. 
I remember the late Stephen Albrecht from Hart, Texas, a big perennial high yield winner. He was one of the first ones that were getting into, irrigated getting into that 400 bushel range. And I remember him saying, Dave, the best yields come from when my corn came up within 12 to 24 hours. He's not saying from the day to plant, but what he's saying is from, from the time he sees that first spikelet come out of the ground till all the rest of them are up, where it's 12 to 24 hours. So I started paying attention to that too. And then where we were seeing that spikelets come up within so many GDUs of each other because we could be much hotter than y'all could be in the Midwest and 12, 24 hours is different here than it would be out there. So in reference to GDUs, we want it to come up in a certain range. And if you can get that corn to come up then, then you have an opportunity to really influence yield. So Paul was saying, Dave, how did you pick up this 27 and a half bushels? Like, all right, this is how we did. We got a better spacing. We got much better. And when I say much better, that's kind of hard for me to say because I thought we were doing a great job. Because previously, our corn planter, we don't have trash sweeps, but we'd have a no-till coulter. We'd run the hydraulic down pressure from precision planting, and we have the meters, and then we had Dawn Curve Time closing wheels. We've been running those since 95 when we first started raising cotton. John Bradley from Island Experimental Station introduced us to that. Then here recently, we've changed a lot of this stuff, but we had a very good emergence. Then when I look at where we had a strip till, we had a better emergence. I'm like, okay, now that's one way which we're influencing you. And then the next way is how else could we do it was with the fertility side. This year, we've done a lot of strips. We were kind of incorporating some and doing tissue samples. I did a lot more this year to where we have some strips where we just broadcast all the fertilizer on top with the soil warrior, just lifted it up, blew the fertilizer out. So we knew we'd have the same rate. Then we did a strip with 40% less. Then we did a strip with 100% of the same amount of fertilizer. Then we did a strip till rig with zero fertilizer. And then we planted some without any fertilizer and no strips. And I want to say there's probably one more test. It's escaping me now. Compared to emergence, we got good simulation, difference in emergence. Then we were diligent in that we were waiting until conditions were right. We like to say we want so many GDUs in a five-day forecast before we start planting. This year, we started out pretty decent. And then we kind of got a cool spell and we stopped the planters. How many of y'all are going to stop a planter? Once you get started, you just want to keep going. But then we stopped the planter because we were waiting for conditions, right? Because we know the value of that uniform emergence. Then we got started again, and then we stopped again. And then we finally finished up. But we noticed wherever we ran the strip till rig, we had more uniform emergence than where we had air um, no-till. Even when we were waiting for conditions to be right. A much better seedbed preparation. There's no residue in the seed trench. We feel really good about that. But we're also doing a good job in our no-till environment. But it just enhanced. But what I was getting at in reference to the plots, we've been pulling a lot of tissue samples. And the first several tissue samples, I don't start tissue sampling until we're at that that V2 to 3 stage. And then I know the V2 stage, we're not getting any, not much good data, but I'm still kind of pulling some samples. Then as it goes along, we were noticing, irregardless of what tillage system we had, we had similar tissue levels, whether it was no-till, whether it was strip-till, whether it was strip-till, with fertilizer and without fertilizer. Why do you think that was? 
we were still putting on the same amount of start. We didn't deviate from that because that is the most important component that we can do when the planter pass is being made outside of getting uniform depth and spacing. It's getting that fertilizer out. So we didn't see a difference. Then after about three sets of samples, we started seeing a little bit of a difference in fertility where we had the strip till being higher with the fertilizer than without. Then we started comparing, all right, where we did a 40% reduction so we were only applying 60% of the fertilizer compared to 100% of the fertilizer. Hey, we weren't seeing a big change there. So that's kind of gotten me excited. Now we're continuing to pull them. We're still collecting data. We haven't finished this season up. So hopefully if I get invited to be part of the strip till conference in 2021, then we'll have some data we can share because we'll have some yield data. And fortunately, that particular farm is not burned up. We had a longer season corn hybrid planted there. It's been able to capture some of these later rains. We're not going to see any 250 bushels corn, but I hope we'll be in that 150 on up range. So we'll get some good yield data. It won't be like irrigated and very consistent. But back to how can we make more dollars raising our corn? Strip tilling is helping us because I see where we can reduce our fertilizer. So that's helping reduce our fertilizer bill. But then it's also allowing us to kind of fulfill that environmental equality, being a good steward. Because as a grower, we're the first environmentalists out there. We've got to protect the soil that we have. So that strip-till rig is allowing us to do that. Well, thank you, David, for sharing some of your initial experiences and benefits transitioning into strip-tilled corn. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Environmental Tillage Systems, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com Or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-blast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2021 podcast series. For David Hula, Environmental Tillage Systems, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.